Well, Calvary, glad to be with you this morning. As Gary said, my name is Zach Thompson, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff, but I'm usually over in the Thornton Clank campus. So grateful to, to get to be here as we continue our series that we're going through that we call Beyond Blue. We are in a particular time of hurt. There, there's so much going on that's filling us with, with pain, with despondency, with, with so many emotions that we would have never asked for. But we're also in a season of hurt. As we end one year and get into a new one, it's often a time where we look back on expectations that we had that fell short or goals that we hoped to accomplish in the past year that were never done so. And now we're supposed to muster up the courage to hope again. And that's difficult to do at this time of year. And so because of that, we wanted to look at the stories God gives us in his word of those who worry like us, who hurt like us, who scream like us, who cry like us, and who doubt like us. One of my favorite people in the Bible is John the Baptist. God spoke through so many incredible men and women of faith in the Old Testament. And yet, while that was going on, people kept turning away from God. They kept refusing to listen to his voice. And we get to a point where God actually stops speaking to them. The end of the Old Testament. But then God breaks his silence in the new as he speaks to John's parents, to Jesus' parents. And then he speaks through John the Baptist himself. And people Take notice, there is something different about this man, and I don't just mean he was wearing weird clothes and eating bugs. No, he is bold. He is denying him so much in his life to follow after God in this special way, and people flock to him to hear what he has to say. He goes toe-to-toe with the religious leaders at this time, holding them accountable, showing them their hypocrisy, their desire to gather and abuse power rather than to use it as God intended. He speaks with such clarity and boldness, and people come from all over to hear from this one. There is something different. Until that boldness, that unwaveringly following after God gets him thrown into prison, but it's okay because he knows what his role is. I'm not the guy, but there's one coming after me who is. I am showing you your sins. I'm showing you where you're following short, following short of following after God. But there's one who is coming after me. He will come to punish and hold everyone accountable. You can throw me in jail, Herod Antipas, but Jesus has come. In Matthew chapter 3, we see John's first words that God speaks through him, John's interaction with these leaders around him. And he says these words to announce this one coming after him, this one that we know to be Jesus. He says this in Matthew 3 verse 12. He says his winnowing fork, he is harvesting, is in his hands. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. He will bring those close to him who are faithful, following after him but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is looking for the day when injustice is made right. John is looking for the day when those who are not faithfully following after God will be held accountable. He is looking for the day when Jesus will do that, when he will right every wrong. 
and yet John's still in jail. And Herod Antipas is still sleeping with his brother's wife. And Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. So doubts start to creep in. If you're following with me, with me, flip over from Matthew 3 to Matthew 11, where we see these doubts come out. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Now when John, John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? When things got to be their worst, John started to have questions, started to have doubts. What he once said with boldness is now a question. Is this actually true? You see, Jesus, you are not doing what I expected you to do. I did what I was supposed to. I followed faithfully after you, but now I'm facing punishment for that, not reward. Jesus, I did my part. I baptized you, and you were supposed to come and baptize people with the Holy Spirit and fire. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. Jesus, when I was arrested, not only did you not do anything about it, you left town. You bailed. Maybe you weren't, you weren't the one I was waiting for. Maybe it's someone else. In times that are so difficult, doubts seep in. Beliefs are questioned. What was said with boldness before is now hesitancy. So as to not be hurt. So as to not be wrong. And we might say, well, of course, John the Baptist is in prison. Spoilers, he's on death row. And when he, someone gets to that place in their life, of course, they're going to have doubts. But this is John the Baptist. This is this one that God spoke through after years of silence. Jesus alone refers to him in this way in Matthew eleven eleven. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Pretty special when Jesus says that about you, right? This is the one that the Old Testament was building up to, that prophets said, this one will come. He will announce the Messiah. It's been building up to John the Baptist. He denied himself so much in life to, to follow after God. Jesus says, you are the greatest of those born of women. John the Baptist looks at your world's greatest boss mug and laughs because his says world's greatest human. And yet that guy had doubts. There is so much in life that fills us with pain, with hurt. There's so much that attacks and damages our mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical health. And the most dangerous part of that is we're never just suffering the thing that we're suffering. The hardship that we're going through, that's not the only thing that we're experiencing. John's issue was not just that he was in jail. See, in times of pain and suffering and hardship, we always add to it. People don't understand what we're going through, or they can no longer stand to be around us because uh, we just keep talking about our pain because that's all that exists for us right now. And, and they leave, and so we add isolation to our list. It was just pain, but now it's pain plus isolation. In 
times like this, we have expectations we put on ourselves uh, that we put onto others, but when those aren't met, now we are adding disappointment to our list. These times are often a wound to our pride because we couldn't do anything to stop it. Things were more out of our control than we realized, than we cared to admit. And in times like this, doubts start to creep in. See, doubts find us when times are hard. Doubts find us when times are hard. We see that with John the Baptist, who who goes from boldness to bindings, from the Jordan to jail, from prophet to prisoner. And as he did so, as he went through these difficult times, what was once first said with boldness is the one coming after me. Behold, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, it's now doubt. Maybe this isn't the one after all. And John is far from the only person in the Bible that we see have doubts find them when times were hard. I think of Abraham. God says, I will make you into a great nation, but how can this be when I don't even have one child? Something must be wrong. Maybe God isn't going to do this. So I'll take things into my own hands and have a child with a woman who's not my wife. And how Abraham responds to doubt actually leads to things being worse. Moses has been up the mountain for 40 days. The people are worried. Maybe the presence of God killed him. So we need to do something about it. We need to take action and doubt leads to a golden calf. Samuel is delayed in coming. He was supposed to be here now, and now the people are leaving. Saul needs to do something. He is the king after all, so he offers a sacrifice himself, breaking God's commandment, and fear and doubt begin the downfall of his reign as king. Doubt finds us when times are hard, and it's truly disappointed to see churches where we put off the perspective or we feel like it's a place where we're not allowed to share our doubts. We just have to smile. We just have to look like perfect Christians. And the reason why this is disappointing is twofold. First, it proves we don't read our Bibles because God's people doubt all over the pages of scripture. And second, it removes us from any ability to get beyond our doubts because God's people have doubts all over the place now as well. We ask questions of God. We make accusations of God. How long, O oh Lord? How long will you just watch all of this happen and not do anything about this? I thought you would have taken care of this by now, but apparently not. Why do you keep allowing this to happen? Don't you see? You must be cruel. Why, God, why? And when these questions and these statements are left unattended, well, we add to them. They become more questions. They grow and grow to where we don't have hope. We reach what some call a crisis of faith. And it completely shakes and shatters our world around us. So, It is truly a wonderful thing that Jesus does not leave John the Baptist in his doubts. Look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 4. The question was, am I the one? 
Well, Jesus answered them and he said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Doubt found John when times were hard and he, like all of us, judged God when uh, based off of the circumstances of his life and yet he was missing out on what God was doing. Each of these things that Jesus points to, each of these acts, well, they were things that the Old Testament said, the Messiah would do these. To be the Messiah, you have to have these acts on your resume. But more than that, John was looking for the day when justice would be brought to this world, when evil would be judged, when the brokenness would be undone. And that's what each of these acts does, restores to life, restores to function, to bring newness to these broken things. Essentially, Jesus' response is this, John, I know what you want. I know you want me to bring in the kingdom. And in your times of hardship, I know you're experiencing that, but you want justice in this world? Well, look, I'm making all things new. Doubt finds us when times are hard. And if we don't deal with our questions, if we don't respond in the right way, they can lead to hopelessness, to despair, to shatter and shake our world around us. So why is there doubt? If doubt can be so damaging to us, why doesn't the Holy Spirit have some some sort of doubt blocker in them so that way we don't have to go through any of this? Why is there doubt? Doubt can be good. Doubt exists because we've been made curious and discerning. Curious, we've been placed in this wonderful world by God. And as we explore, as we uh, learn more about it, it, it helps us to learn more about him, to grow in closeness to God. Discerning as we're experiencing these things, it's, it's the ability to see what's good and what's bad for us and to choose what is good. So these are good things, but we run into problems when our curiosity creates insufficient hypotheses in the times we falsely discern that our circumstances do not align with God's character, which is a really convoluted way of saying doubt finds us when times are hard and we don't know how to explain it. Doubt finds us when times are hard and yet doubt can be such a good thing when done properly. Doubt helps me to know what's true when I receive a phone call and it's a robotic voice on the other line that wants to talk to me about my car's extended warranty. (laughs) Joke's on you, bud. I can't afford an extended warranty. (laughs) Doubt helps us to arrive to the truth when uh, that an alien did not come and take the last cookie with its tractor beam, despite the child with crumbs on his face saying that that's what they saw happen. Doubt helps me to know how to respond when I receive my about weekly email from Pastor Tom that says, hey, can you go and buy me some gift cards? But don't call me, just respond to this email, which is strange because the email is not coming from calvarybible.com and I've gotten them while in a meeting with Tom before. (laughs) And proper doubt can actually help strip away thoughts and expectations and beliefs that we have on God to remove those and actually bring us closer to God. Because doubt is a pursuit of what is true, and we will always arrive at the God who is truth when we are doing that. 
really like how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said that the heart that has never doubted has not yet learned to believe. As the farmers say, the land that won't grow a thistle, well, it will not grow wheat. In other words, it is far more dangerous to not have thoughts about God than to have thoughts about God. Well, why is that? Well, doubts reveal a mind that is pursuing him, that is trying to reconcile this broken world with a perfect God. It's trying to find alignment with his character. If we don't have doubts about God, we probably don't have thoughts about him. And doubt can help us to arrive at God, at who he really is, to get rid of traditions or things that we thought to be true about him, to strip away uh, things that we, we thought God was like. And in so doing, it brings us closer to the actual God. Doubt can be a good thing. It's how we respond to doubt that matters. It doesn't force us to leave God. It doesn't force us to make rash decisions, but it's how we respond to doubt that makes all of the difference. Well, and how do we do it? In those times that we have these questions, when we make these accusations about God, how do we respond to doubt? Well, the first way is we don't doubt alone. We don't doubt alone. It is, I've said it before, but it's, it's so disappointing when churches make you feel like you just have to have your act together. You have to smile. You have to prove that you're believing really, really hard because in those situations, what we're doing is we're actively driving people to despair. So find someone, get in a group, find a man or a woman that's older than you and ask them, how have you gone through your doubts? Because here's the thing, they've gone through doubts. Find someone to help you feel like you're not going through this alone. We respond to doubts by remembering what God has done in our lives before, what he's done throughout history before, and we celebrate those things. We ask questions, is God really good? Well, how has he demonstrated his goodness to you before? Does God really care? Well, how has God shown his love in your life before this? Well, this is so hard to do when we're in doubt, when our our hurts just seem to fill every crevice of who we are. So what was step one again? We don't doubt alone. In the times where it's so difficult for us to remember and celebrate the personal work of Jesus, well, we need others to come alongside of us to help lighten the load. Similarly, we fill ourselves with truth. Doubt is the time to read our Bibles more and not less. As we're asking the question, is God really who he says that he is? Well, let's go to the place where we can see who does God say that he is? And this is especially impactful because oftentimes we're doubting not the God of the Bible, but a God that we've unknowingly created. For example, we might say, God wouldn't let his people go through this. God never promises that. Said God gives us better promises, that he is with us always, that he has suffered and gone through everything so he can sympathize with us in every way, that we aren't alone in it, that God will reconcile this world and and bring restoration to it. And these are much better promises than I will keep you in a bubble for the rest of your life. And so let's see who God says that he is in these times of doubt. 
C.S. Lewis said something uh, on a different topic, but I think it, it really relates here. He says, this is why daily prayers and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. See what I did there? Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. This is true at all times. This is especially true when we're in doubt. We respond to doubt by going slow. Maybe we hear the story of John the Baptist and we get a little bit angry, just a little bit. He had his doubts, he expressed them to Jesus and he got an answer. Sure, not the answer that he wanted, but man, must be nice to get something because rarely, bordering on never, are our doubts resolved overnight. It can be years or it could feel like years of asking the same questions, of pursuing God, of trying to get some sort of clarity of what's going on which is why it takes such great comfort in the story of Thomas, perhaps the Bible's most famous doubter. He is told by these other disciples that that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he says, unless if I see and touch the wounds, I will never believe. Do you hear how strong that statement is? But then we often jump to the end of the story. Jesus does appear and it's fantastic and everything's lovely, but we skip out on a detail that John chapter 20 gives us. It says eight days later. Eight days. And we might say, well, eight days, that's not a very long time at all, but, but it must have felt like an eternity. Eight days of being surrounded by people saying Jesus is alive and not feeling that that's true. Eight days of people worshiping because this miraculous event has occurred, and yet you're still feeling like the one that you followed for three years, the one you put your hopes and your trust in is dead. Eight days of feeling like the odd man out. And when Jesus does appear, there's no shame. There's no condemnation. There's no, man, things would have been better for you if you just believed more. No, it's now Thomas knows Jesus better than he did before because he's gone through these doubts. That's the last piece. How do we respond to doubt? Well, we don't doubt alone. We remember and celebrate. We fill ourselves with truth. We go slow. And then we remember that doubt is not the end. Doubt doesn't mean that we're too far gone, that because we're asking these questions that he might smite us Doubt doesn't mean that that we are are not loved or not cared for by him. Doubt doesn't mean that we're lacking in belief. Doubt's not the opposite of belief. We have a word for that. Uh, It's unbelief. That's the word for it. It's not doubt. But God often uses these times to work in people's lives, to bring them closer to him, to knowing him better than he did before, like he did with Thomas. Doubt finds us when times are hard. And when we're going through this, we join a long line of doubters, John the Baptist, Abraham, Spurgeon, and least deserving to ever be included in a list with those three guys, me. Every time something difficult comes up, whether it's big or small, I'm asking the same questions that I did last time and the time before that and the time before that and the time before that of wondering how can you do all of this, God, and and each time he is faithful. 
How grateful are we to see a God who is bigger than our doubts? How grateful are we to have a church to where we can bring our struggles to? How grateful are we to have a hope that is unwavering because it's not built on anything that you and I can do. It's not built off of our efforts, how strong we believe, how much we look like the perfect Christian. But instead, our hope is built on Jesus, who John doubted, who Thomas doubted, who everyone has doubted, and yet he faithfully came to this world to seek and save the lost, the doubter. Doubt finds us when times are hard, and we are in a season that is is so difficult, so it can be one where we are experiencing doubts, questions about God's goodness and character and love. But we are also in a particular season of doubt, that there are more stories or at least more publicized stories or perhaps some stories that are hitting close to home of people doubting to the point of walking out of church entirely. There's this word that's being used to describe this movement, and and that word is deconstruction. And this word is actually used to mean a lot of things, probably more than it should mean. Because when people think of deconstruction, they think of all the reason why people are leaving the church. It might be those horror stories that we tell. They grew up in the church, and then they went away to college, and they took one class, and now they doubt everything they used to believe in. We might know people like that, and so I don't want to diminish it, but that, that story is actually a relatively rare one. Statistically, that's not why we see people leaving church. We see people leaving church because of a desire to sin, and this is nothing new. As God gives us a way to live that's joyful and for our benefits, there's always that doubt, that question that comes of, is it really, though? Because this looks pretty good, and I think I'd rather have that. And we fall in the footsteps of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, who had a desire to go against God's command for them, And it started with a doubt, a question. Did God really say? People leave church because of hurts that's caused or felt by other Christians or people that they they care about that's hurt by other Christians, whether that's an individual or an entire people group. And while some of this is is certainly not fair, we, we have to be honest that there are a lot of awful moments in church history. And we're currently going through a lot of awful moments. There's abuses of just about every kind. There are churches that are clearly misusing their nonprofit status. There are churches that are clearly preying on other people. And when these stories are out or when these stories are experienced, it's not just that church that did that to me. All churches are like this. And there are people leaving because the brokenness of this world has been going on for more than just the past two years. How can we go to a place that constantly talks about the goodness of God when all we see is the badness of this world? There are all kinds of reasons why people are leaving the church, and yet none of these fit under what's meant by deconstruction. These would be deconversions. People who say, I want nothing to do with God, I want nothing to do with the church. Deconstruction says, I want nothing to do with the church that I experienced. That there was hypocrisy in leadership. 
that other Christians acted in a way that sent me running, that it was a place where I wasn't allowed to ask questions. I just had to blindly accept. It was a place where I saw misusage of power. It was a place where I was supposed to see the love of Jesus there. You will know they are my disciples by how they love one another, and yet the church was no more united than the rest of the world was. It's a place of blind obedience, of perfection, and that was exhausting. Deconstruction asked the question of what do I actually believe about God because what I saw in the church is not what I believed or what I thought I believed. And in these two instances of deconversion and deconstruction, there's an aspect of doubt to both of them. And so our steps could still be helpful. Don't doubt alone. Remember and celebrate. Fill yourself with truth. Go slow. Remember, doubt is not the end. But each of those kind of have the assumption that you'll be working in church community on them. And what do you do when you don't feel accepted or you don't want to be part of a church community? We might need some additional remedies or preemptive actions. How do we help those who are going through these times Well, the first step for us to do is we listen. We don't know why this person who is in our life has left the church. It could be that they're in a time of hurt. It could be that they have been burnt out by this church. It could be that they don't feel that there is a God at all. Variety of reasons for that. And yet if we come at them with apologetics, answering the questions of Christianity, and yet they're really struggling with the goodness of God or abuses that they felt within the church, we might do more harm than good. The church can grow so much in its impact in society and people's lives by by just growing in how we listen to others, to listen in their hurts, in their pains, in their doubts. And again, it's, it's hard to hear these things. It's hard to hear accusations labeled against this God that we so care about And yet, it's what we find throughout the pages of Scripture. The Bible never pretends like things are perfect, and so neither should we. Instead, this must be a place where questions are encouraged and permitted. Questions help us make sure that we're staying on mission. Questions help stop abuses in their tracks. Questions help us offer help that's actual help and not just what we think they need. So the first step when we see someone going through these times of doubt is we listen. And the second step that we do is we listen. And probably up to step eight is we listen. And all the while, we remember that doubt does not mean it's the end. Doesn't mean they're too far gone. Doesn't mean God has given up on them and neither should we. But instead, what we see oftentimes and what our prayer always for those who are going through doubt is that it's cyclical. It's never a guarantee, but God often uses these times of doubt, whether it's hurt or deconversion or deconstruction, to bring people back to him with a greater trust in him than before. And a quick little note for parents. I recognize that this time is, is particularly worrying. What if my child leaves the church? What if they grow up and abandon everything that they believed in? 
While we never have a guarantee that, that our children will follow in our footsteps of faith, I do think that there are some preemptive steps that we can take for when the doubts do come, and they will come. So I just have a, a series of questions, kind of an inventory for us to take. And the first one is this, is Christ compelling in your household? Is the hope that we so desperately rely on from Jesus, is that put on display? Or is Christianity just a set of rules to follow? Is it something that we assume is there because we go to church together? Or would we find it there at all? Is, is Jesus seen so compelling that when other things come along, other things that we might see as, as worth following after instead, is the mag- magnesty and glory and love of God so compelling that it will outlast every pull that this child will feel? That work has to start in the home. One example of this, uh, LifeWay did a study a couple years back of what traits do we see in those students who left home, but they're continuing in the church. And, And the top result was Bible study. So are you teaching your child to read the Bible for themselves? I I don't have time to be making this point in general, let alone to give uh, tips on this. So I, I encourage you. You have a kids team here. You have a students team here that wakes up every single morning just wishing you would ask for help with this, how to help your child read the Bible. Find them afterwards. Tune me out for the rest of this if you haven't already and send them an email because it's so vital to help our kids read the Bible. Is church compelling? Is this seen as a place to recharge, to worship, to find community, to be reminded of the hope that we have? Is it seen as a beacon of light in a dark, dark world, or is it just something that we do? We listen to this guy from some other campus talk for way too long, and then we get to go to lunch. Then when something else comes up on a Sunday morning, well, first thing to go is church. Where did these kids learn to choose things other than than church as parents who spent their childhood doing the same. Do your kids know your doubts? Do they know the times that it's been hard for you to follow after God? Do they know the struggles that you've gone through? Or is it going to be that when they experience them for themselves and they never saw you go through any of these, they think something's wrong with them, something must be wrong with God? Hey, I just want to leave us with one more reminder. Doubt doesn't mean it's the end. Doubt doesn't mean that there's no faith there, that there's no hope there, that there's no uh, expectation for them ever to return to God. That when we see people who are so close to Jesus, but now they're asking questions about it, they're just following in the footsteps of John the Baptist, who did the same. And we should come alongside them like Jesus did to help in those times of doubt. That when we hear things that are so hard to listen to, accusations said about this God that we so love, but we're just hearing the words of Scripture said back to us, but recontextualized for their context. And as we're with this person that we care about, praying that they would come back to God, just because they're going through doubts doesn't mean that that is off the table. The doubt can be cyclical. The doubt sometimes follows the pattern that T.S. Eliot gives us. He says that we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. 
Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you are bigger than any doubt. That you give us story after story in your Bible of those who are asking questions, saying things that are, that are so hard to hear. And you never ask us to pretend like this world is perfect. You never tell us just to believe harder. You never tell us just to smile and act like things are perfect. But instead, you're with the doubter. You have come for the doubter. You're restoring all things, even in these times when it looks like that doesn't seem possible. Thank you for this church that you've given us full of doubters to help us in ours. Thank you for putting us in the lives of people that we so care about, that we want them to know who you are, and yet they don't seem to. Fill us with the words, with the ability, with the patient to listen and listen and listen. That you are the God of the prodigal. That you are the God of those who cried out, who accused you of so much, and yet you constantly pour out love and grace and goodness. So it's to you and you alone that we pray. Amen.